Well, here we are for another episode of Unplugged. I'm your host, Jacob Puckett. And with me today, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast here, Tanner. It's Tanner Greer, our Senior VP and Chief Technology Officer. Tanner, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. It has been a little while. I enjoyed it last time, so hopefully we'll have another good one today. I, it was a good podcast last time, and we talked about a similar topic. And, and the reason I wanted to talk about this again is I feel like the whole cybersecurity um, particularly the cyber warfare side of things has kind of popped back up in the news. We're seeing that pretty much everywhere, especially with the conflict uh, with Russia and Ukraine overseas, which we're not going to get into the conflict specifically. But I found this really interesting article online, and, and I thought this this little paragraph was kind of a good starter for us because I have a bunch of questions based off this. And it said, the prospect of a potential attack should not be confused with idle speculation. Power grid attacks have occurred elsewhere, and Russia has at times seemed like the likely culprit. In particular, a cyber attack on a utility substation in Ukraine in 2015 impacted 230,000 people in several hours, and it affected 60 substations knocked offline. And no sooner did I send you that <laughs> than the next day, Russia tried another attack on Ukraine's system, this time unsuccessful. I, I, did someone, I assume someone caught it or did software? How does that work? How do you catch something like that? I mean, I didn't, something of that magnitude seems kind of above my brain. Yeah, um, you, you catch it in a couple different ways. I mean, it could be software. A lot of times uh, a piece of software that you have in place to help protect you will alert you to some sort of traffic that's not normal, you know, coming from a different country you're not expecting or or maybe a person you're not expecting. And a lot of times uh, they'll be using a particular technique, an attack technique, um, that's been identified. And once that attack is identified, um, the different security companies will you know, kind of be looking for that uh, that attack uh, pattern. And if they detect that, they'll know that that's um, you know, kind of the early stages of a compromise. And they'll either block it if, if the tools are there to do that, or if they can't block it, they'll typically alert someone, you know, hey, this, this, uh, you know, this person's trying to attack you. Uh, you need to do something about it. So let's talk about these people who are behind the attack. I personally, I think everybody, um, and when I make the cyber attack graphics on uh, social media, you always get this stereotypical dude sitting in a basement with uh, the dark hoodie on, yeah. <laughs> and it's the stereotypical person. But I mean, honestly, it's not always that. I mean, these are state actors too, right? Who Who is the bad actor uh, in this scenario? Is it always the person we're stereotyping it to be? Yeah, I mean, I mean... They're, I think they're kind of broke down in a couple different groups. Um, you got kind of the the ransom seekers and the spammers, um, and uh, then you have nation states like you mentioned. I um, mean, you know, a lot of these nations have dedicated teams. And in fact, you know, we have teams um, that do uh, you know espionage and um, do that in a cyber sense versus you know the old traditional send a spy to a different country. This is just a virtual spy. Um, you know, trying to get into another country's industrial military complex systems, things like that. There's also a new thing that's kind of um, been coming out. Um, it's called, it's really like hacking as a service. Um, so a, a group will, you know, create a powerful malware or some sort of hacking um, device. And then for other groups that maybe aren't as skilled in that area, they'll just license out their, you know, their skills. Um, so you pay them and then they basically attack whichever, you know, country, company, whatever you would like. Then there's always kind of the, I don't know, maybe the original hackers, um, kind of like what I call or what a lot of people call hacktivists, uh, where there's some sort of, you know, they have some sort of cause. Um, maybe it's environmental, maybe it's a government, you know, political statements, things like that. And they're not as much to, you know, they kind of just 
they tried to really just destroy, I mean, not really get money out of something. Instead, they're trying to just break down something, uh, maybe a political opponent uh, that they don't like. Uh, Maybe it's a politician that they don't like their message or a particular company who's doing something that, you know, um, in the environment or or some other stance that the company's taken that they don't like. Um, And then there's always espionage, um, whether just corporate espionage, you know. A lot of these companies have these highly secretive patents, uh, especially for products they're developing or uh, and then, you know, having that information could be very valuable to a a competitor. And those are a little more rare, um, but they do happen. And um, but they're they're harder to I guess they're a little harder to detect. You don't see as much in the news about them. And when we're talking about cyber attacks, and particularly on the U.S. grids, I mean, what can we do to prevent that? Because to me, it seems like that's something, um, it's not that you can't do anything about it. You can certainly do a lot about it, and that's what I want you to touch on. But it just seems like a really, it's a scary thing, but it's also, uh, there's so many people who could do it, you know what I mean? Or could attack, I guess, do cyber warfare or do these cyber attacks. There's so many people out there do it. How do you stop it? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you first got to understand what they're what they're looking for. Um, so, uh, up front, they're looking to access your system, um, and then they're looking for either control or information. They want to control something. Uh, maybe it's a pipeline like Colonial, uh, where they wanted to, um, you know, stop that, you know, basically hack in and stop a particular system from working, or it could be just data that they want to steal. You know, that they. They know that you have um, you know, private data of your customers or things like that, and they want to steal that. Um, so you got to understand kind of what they're looking for, uh, and then um, what their motivation is. And, you know, a lot of times it's money. It's become pretty um, pretty profitable business to be in. Um, you've seen some of the big ransomware payments that different companies have made. Uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars, and so it's just another criminal element like some of the others. But after you understand that. Um, then you just kind of break down things. And, you know, there's that old adage with the elephant, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And, and that's really, uh, that's really how you tackle it. You can't, you do got to look at the big picture, but, um, the big pictures are made up of a bunch of tiny pieces and you just, you you know, you take steps to, to do those t- um, tiny pieces, um, industry standard best practices. Uh, there's so many out there. There's different uh, organizations that provide those you know, kind of frameworks for for what is considered a good cybersecurity posture. So, uh, things like keeping systems updated, you know, making sure that uh, if there's patches or updates to a particular system or a piece of hardware that you do those. Um, uh, limiting access. So if someone doesn't need to have access to a system, you don't give them access. And then a thing that's been really popular or kind of up and coming is what they call the zero trust model. Um, the zero trust is, in a nutshell, is basically you start out by saying this system can't talk to anyone. It trusts no one. And then you basically only open up the things that are explicitly needed for that system. So uh, if a system needs to talk to two other systems, then that's the only two systems it can talk to and everybody else um, it can't. Um, so that's a, you know, those are kind of the best practices um, in, in addition uh, we try to do layers of security or defense in depth. Um, some people call it. Um, you don't rely on one technology or one person or you know one uh, you know entity or, or um, a company that you're using. Uh, you basically layer on layers. So um, if one layer doesn't stop the person, maybe the next layer will. Maybe the next layer will. Maybe the next layer will. Uh, kind of one of those things. That, uh, if you translate it to a home, it might be you know you got a home with open doors. 
And that's the worst case scenario. Layers would be locking the doors, installing an alarm system, having cameras, uh, having a dog. Um, so, you know, you're making your company or your systems as hard as you possibly can do um, where uh, you're either going to find out um, you know, quickly that something's going on or the person's just going to move on to an easier target. Um, that's, you know, your ideal goals. So, and you touched on this quite a bit, but it's really collective effort then for the U.S. grid. Because when I think about the U.S. grid, I mean, we got Blue Ridge and you got thousands of other utilities out there who are providing electricity or gas services, you know, heating fuel um, to all these places and businesses and homes. So it really is everybody's got to have, I guess, pitch in and put in effort to make this work. I mean, because we're so many different pieces. If a couple of links are bad, then that can throw down the whole system. Yeah. Um, so a big thing in the past few years that have been going on, kind of talking about like the cooperative or collaborative effort is um, uh, big, um, big pushes for information sharing. So there's been a lot of uh, government uh, programs um, and and then just industry specific programs to basically share. Um, hey, you know, someone uh, someone connected us from China and in a malicious way. Here's who they were. Um, so that way. Uh, you know, the, that person connecting into you is not the first time you see it. You see it in advance and then you go ahead and preemptively, you know, keep that person from from using that. Um, and then there's also, like I said, government agencies and they, they're basically um, taking uh, input from all these different organizations. There's a big push uh, on critical infrastructure um, from the current administration to, you know, we need to secure it. I mean, the Colonial Pipeline was a big, um, you know, kind of a black eye. Um, you know, look what can happen in just a few days. Uh, fuel prices going up. You know, um, you know fuel not or uh, uh, natural gas and oil and things like that are not flowing, um, and how much that can disrupt just our everyday life. So there's been a big push um, to get um, these agencies um, to create these information sharing platforms, so that um, if we did, if we have something happen to us, we can let everyone else know before it happens to them. And not to completely switch gears, but uh, it kind of came to mind when you were talking about this just a few minutes ago. You were talking about the layers of security, and you used a house as an example. And you said, you know, having a lock on the door and make sure the door was shut, but then having a security system behind that. You know, more and more we're putting technology into our house. And, I mean, I think that's going to continue to grow because, I mean, it makes our lives easier, so it makes sense. Do you think there is an inherent risk to that? And if there is an inherent risk to that, how do you mitigate it? How do you make sure that your home is the safest it can be, you know, whether that's baby monitors, whether that's uh, video systems, making sure nobody's hacking into that network? Um, yeah, I, th I think there's some risk. I, I don't think the risk was maybe quite as, as large as, um, you know, as people think. I think a lot of that has to do with the companies you select. Um, so if you're going to have a baby monitor, you know, doing doing a little background um, to figure out which baby monitor is got security, you know, in mind, um, which company feels like, you know, is doing the best as far as securing um, that video uh, that's coming, uh, that's uh, being transmitted. Uh, so I think it's, you know, basically doing a little evaluation, you know, which companies have a security mindset, which ones are at the forefront um, versus, you know, whatever is the cheapest thing on Amazon. Um, that really you don't know who it came from and, and who might have access or, or what backdoor. But I think reputable companies, I'm sticking with those. It does create some risk. I, there's um, I mean, we're definitely sharing a lot more information than we used to, uh, mm -hmm. and there's some risk with that, uh, whether it's just you know something as simple as identity theft. 
um, because we just have so much information out there to, like you said, control of uh, things we put in our house. Maybe that's lights or thermostats or or other things. But uh, I think if you, you you know keep you know, and, and also I think you have to keep a little bit of aware. You know, if you're going to have technology, then you know you need to when you're scrolling the news. If something comes up about that technology, you know, it's something you need to read. Uh, maybe it's uh, you know, let's say you have a thermostat and the company says, "Hey, we had this issue." Um, you know, we're, we're updating our thermostats or, you know, we need to, you to update your thermostat and that's the kind of things you just need to pay attention to, um, to kind of make a kind of a mental inventory of the companies that you do business with. And then, you know, be aware for any news about, um, you know, any type of, uh, cyber things that relate to that company. Yeah. Cause one of the first things that definitely comes to mind is you see these crazy stories, whether on TMZ or Today Show, wherever they're at, uh, the, this poor set of parents at home and they heard somebody talking to their kid in another room and they thought their house was haunted. It wasn't haunted. It was actually some hacker that's come through on a baby monitor. Um, how does that stuff happen though? I mean, how, how do you hack in? I can't wrap my brain around the process of how you could hack into something like a, a camera that's isolated on an individual home or a, a baby monitor or an Alexa speaker. Um, you know, how, how does, how does that even happen from an IT perspective? Yeah. I mean, there's really kind of two ways and one can happen, but it's pretty rare where someone, you know, in your neighborhood, is able to connect to a device that you have, maybe get on your Wi-Fi network or something like that. Um, but what typically happens is um, uh, really either twofold. Um, one, the company that has sells the product has some sort of vulnerability in it. Um, let's say it's you know baby monitor company A, and they they come to find out in their software there's a little bug that if um, a particular person executes you know a set of commands it will give them you know a live feed into a baby monitor so it's something like that um, or it's uh, basically you know if someone uh, doing a, sending you a phishing email um, or uh, you know uh, smishing is kind of the new thing with the text messaging but sending you a link whether it's Facebook Messenger or email or wherever um, to that clicks on something that basically gives them a backdoor to your network. And then that's how it happens. Um, so typically it's the latter two. Um, most of the time, you know, if someone's trying to compromise something, they don't want to be right next to the place they're trying to compromise right. and it puts them at risk. Um, so they'd rather be in a foreign country or, you know, a, you know, millions of miles away. Um, so typically, like I said, it's company, a vulnerability in the software and the design, or um, you've allowed them on your network. Um, that's really, that's really the two ways it happens. So definitely don't make your uh, Wi-Fi password one two three Wi-Fi one two three or anything yeah. like that. But that's and that's the you, you touched on something too that I think is really important. I think society as a whole has become more aware of phishing attempts because we've seen it so many times on um, email chains and things like that. And and I don't want to say they've become easy to identify, but a lot of people I guess have become more educated about it. Yeah. But of course. Everything evolves, including criminals. Yeah. So they've also figured out how to do this through text message. I feel like it's not necessarily it's not new, but we're seeing more of it. Do you want to describe how that how that's worked, like how they're doing that and how they're targeting people through text message? That people can be more aware of it. Yeah. I mean, it's really a lot of the same things um, that you see in email. Um, basically or typically you're contacted by, um, you know, by a 
company or a person that you're not really aware of, or you weren't really expecting to be contacted by. Sometimes it aligns with something you are like, you know, you've heard the whole, um, you've got a package kind of thing and you actually did have a package come in. So that tricks people. Um, but typically, uh, it's a link or an attachment. Um, and it comes in via, you know, different methods. Um, and then when you click that link, it is usually exploiting some vulnerability, um, you know, that's out there. Uh, maybe it's a browser vulnerability or um, something like that, or uh, an application or um, on the phone or even like a mobile phone vulnerability. And then once you click that link, it's basically using that vulnerability to create them a backdoor or, or, you know, some other thing that they want. Sometimes it's sending all your internet traffic to them so they can watch it. Uh, sometimes it's controlling, you know, whatever device that you click that link or attachment on. Um, but it really starts out, um, you know, kind of it's the basic things. It's the same things in a, in texting as it is an email, you know, making sure that the email you're getting is from the person you're expecting uh, or make sure it's someone that you've actually done business with. Like if you're an insurance agent and I get an email from you and I just did emailed you a couple of days ago asking for a quote, that makes sense. If you randomly email me as an insurance agent and say, hey, here's this quote I provided you, and I didn't ask for the quote, I mean, there you go. Um, you know, it's, it's really, really common sense things. And uh, uh, one thing that you can really do, other than just being really careful about things you click, is um, what they call like out-of-band verification. So uh, think of a band as one medium of communication, and another band is a different medium. So... Uh, in that same um, scenario, if you're the insurance agent and you send me this quote and I think, well, maybe it's about time for my renewal. So maybe I do need to get a quote. Then I'll just call you on the phone. You know, hey, Jacob, do you send me this quote? And that's another band, a different medium. Um, and I can verify that that email is, is true and good. Um, and for things like that, I mean, you just really can't be too careful. Uh, it's way better to spend a little extra time and make sure something's legitimate than, uh, you know, to potentially click and expose the things inside your house, the smart speakers, the baby monitors, things like that. See, because you touched on something that was uh, it brought up a memory I had the other day of hearing about this, but there's a software program, if I remember right, that's out there. I can't remember the name of it, but it is really as simple as opening up the wrong text message and clicking the wrong link. And not only do they have access to your information, they can turn on your cameras when they want to, read every bit of communication you have. I mean, basically anything you're doing on your phone I mean, they have access to it in that moment. I mean, that's that's crazy to think about. Yeah, that actually came out of, um, there's a, there was a company, I think they were based out of Israel, and they basically found a malware in um, Apple devices. Um, it was a different uh, particular version of, of Apple software that they run on their phones, and uh, they were able to exploit that. They could send a text to the phone. It didn't even actually require a click. Wow. Um, they even could just worse. send a text to the phone, and once they sent that text to the phone, um, it would basically give them full access. They could uh, look at the camera. They could look through your photos, your text messages, your phone calls, your browsing history, all those kind of things. And um, they were able to use that for a while. And actually, believe it or not, um, they're a legitimate company that was selling this product to uh, different nations. Oh, wow. uh, and like a were, weapon. Yeah. And there were the nations were using it. Um, and they had some vaguely you know, uh, vague rules about, you know, you really shouldn't, you got to do this to only like your enemies <laughs> kind of thing. But it was a, yeah, it was a, don't do a, it to nice people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's don't subjective. do it to the people that, you know, don't do it to anyone that's not, you know, your enemies per se, but it was pretty vague. And basically what they found out is these nations were, you know, they were exploiting this and abusing it. Um, uh, using it on, uh, just uh, people that didn't agree with the current administration in those countries or, 
you know, political dissidents, things like that. Um, but uh, Apple did find out about it, and um, it for a while. I think it was it was probably three or four months, maybe even six months. Um, it was just in the wild, and then they found out about it and they patched it. But again, kind of what I mentioned earlier, you know, how many people? I mean, how many of the average people? Your, you know, your uncle, your aunt uh, at the Thanksgiving dinner. How many of those people like keep their iPhone up to date with the latest patches? Probably not many. I mean, they've made it a little easier now. You can set it to auto update. But if you haven't done that, I mean, how many people do that? So a lot of phones out there still running this old version that's still vulnerable. Um, and and people, you know, so again, like the devices in your life, the the, the phones or the, the laptops or, or whatever you use, the technology, you've got to... You've got to do a little bit of cybersecurity work yourself, even as a person in your home, keeping your devices up to date um, and, you know, keeping an eye out for any news about, you know, hacks with those companies, things like that. That wraps up another episode. If you enjoy the Unplugged podcast, hit the subscribe button.